Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program.
Jerusalem, oh, I can recall the first time I laid eyes upon your golden wall. Jerusalem, your very name brings the images of my year with you rushing back again. Jerusalem, your precious stone. Tells the story of the ages that man has known. Jerusalem, with each step I take, brings me closer to the one I knew and lets me see my heritage. From King David's tomb, up to hearts of feet, back to the core.
it's hard to commit to it. You say that it's hard standing still. Don't you know that I spend all my nights counting backwards the days till I'm home?
J.M. in the A.M., the great classic, Achenu, Levanefesh at J.M. in the A.M. Arye Kunzler before that with Az Yashir. You heard Ach Sameach done by Yaakov Shweki. The Maccabees with Home, Kishoshana, that was Avram, Avram Friedolf of Bring the House Down. Mordechai Shapiro's Schar Mitzvah, Lacha Etain, that classic from Dedi. Safam's Jerusalem, Shmakoleinu from Dvekas, off their volume number four. And Regesh, of course, Modani opening things up. And we say good morning. It's Thursday on this October the 27th, the 25th of Tishrei. Good morning, everybody. It's the brand new year, 5777. A pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM on this Thursday morning. 44 degrees outside with rain at a high temperature of 54. Then tonight, rain early and a low of 47. Tomorrow, partly cloudy, windy, and a high temperature 52 degrees. Yushalayim is at 83. We're at 44. So you're speaking to somebody early this morning who... um I was not in the New York area during Sukkot. Told him that. Uh, <laughs> told him that we were enjoying temperatures in the mid 80s on the first days of Yontif, and now we're at 44 degrees uh, here in Jersey City. As we say good morning at JM in the AM, a quarter before seven o'clock. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Tomorrow is Friday. Weekly update will return. Malcolm Honline will join us starting at 7:40 tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM. Make sure to be tuned in. 7.40 tomorrow morning, Malcolm Honline, with the uh, weekly update. We'll uh, explore the events of the week, check out what is uh, what is happening and what uh, continues to happen in this amazing world of ours. Reminder that uh, coming up, for, for those of you who are listeners uh, on the terrestrial radio, um, this does not a uh, this does not affect those who are outside New York and New Jersey or those who are in New York and New Jersey who listen on our app or on the computer or the listen line or archives, whatever the case may be. Uh, for those of you who are um, listening on terrestrial radio, remember that on December the first, the big switch takes place, where we will um, become the exclusive presentation of the Nachum Siegel Network in order to listen in. On a weekday morning, you'll have to make sure to uh, tune in on your computer or web radio or our app or the listen line. Keep all that in mind. We'll speak more about it as we get closer and make some recommendations for people out there. If you have specific questions about the transition, if you have a um, if you have a uh, an inquiry regarding uh, how to use your phone to listen to the show or how to use your computer or iPad to listen to the show. Uh, you can email Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at NahumSiegel.com. Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at NahumSiegel, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. All right, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at NahumSiegel, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. You could utilize uh, Yoni's services and he will uh, navigate you through the uh, the process and to make it as easy as possible. Most people, once they uh, once they discover uh, how easy it is to make this transition, about 25 seconds later, they are all in. So that's what we want. We want everybody out there to be all in and to join us as we make this big switch. 13 minutes before 7 o'clock, JM and the AM Thursday. Plenty more coming up. 
Keep it here at JM in the AM with Shalshelis Jr.
Alone I was casted aside With nothing to hide Only me Didn't fight, only rest While I gave it my best And walked with a disagree So I started off young I started to run To places I thought you would find me But no, you never did find You only did hide The places I thought I would one day climb But now we're here at the inside You gave me the tools that would help me climb Higher than my original days You've seen the best, best of my ways So you taught me to fly Not just get by You've seen what I can be Now I'm out of my own Never alone I can see that was one to stone So I started to
Rogers Park before that was Shared Hearts off of the Magid CD. Shalshelis Jr. had the Shalshelis medley off of Junior Volume 2. Rain today with a high temperature of 54. Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. It is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial. Broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org, and of course on the NSN app. I remind everybody that uh, coming up on December the 1st, we're going to have our uh, big transition where those who listen in the New York, New Jersey area on terrestrial radio will have to switch to the Nahum Siegel Network in order to hear JM in the AM, which means you want to make sure you have the NSN app. You want to make sure you have access to our listen line. You want to make sure you know how to use an iPad with our app. It's very simple, a one-step procedure. I want to make sure you know what to do to listen in your car through your Bluetooth or through your auxiliary cable. And uh, any questions, you can email yoni at nachumsegel.com. It's yoni, Y-O-N-I, at nachumsegel, N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for Thursday next to Jamie. גלי צהל השעה שתיים, כאן רן יבנאי עם מה שקורה עכשיו. הותר לפרסום כי תושב ירושלים נעצר בחשד שתכנן פיגועי טרור בשטח ישראל. כתבנו אריאל זיגלר.
מוחמד עבאסי, תושב שכונת ראס אל עמוד, נעצר על ידי השב"כ ומשטרת ירושלים בחודש האחרון. על פי החשד הוא תכנן לבצע פיגוע ירי במזרח ירושלים, וכן היה מעורב במספר יידויי בקבוקי תבערה ואבנים, והרי זיקוקים לעבר כוחות הביטחון ולעבר כלי רכב. בחשבון הפייסבוק שלו הופיעו פרסומים התומכים בארגון חמאס ומשבחים פיגועים קשים שבוצעו בשנה האחרונה. היום הוגש נגדו כתב אישום. שנת מאסר בפועל נגזרה על המטפלת שהשאירה תינוק באמבטיה וגרמה למותו ברשלנות. כתבנו איתמר קציר. המטפלת אביגיל דניאל הודתה כי השאירה את זוהר ארגז בן ה-11 חודשים ואת אחיו התאום ללא השגחה באמבטיה למשך כחמש דקות ונידונה לשנת מאסר. בנוסף, כחלק מהסדר הטיעון, תפצה המטפלת את משפחת הפעוט ב-80 אלף שקל. הפרקליטות הגישה כתב אישום בפרשת יריד המדע בתל אביב נגד שבעה נאשמים, בהם חמישה בכירים לשעבר ברשת אורט. כתבתנו דור מימון. על פי כתב האישום, הנאשמים גרמו ברשלנות לפציעתם החמורה של שלושה ילדים ביריד המדע שנערך בכיכר רבין בתל אביב בשנת 2014. שלושת הילדים הגיעו ליריד המדע וצפו בניסוי הנקרא ניסוי הסירה, שנערך שלא על פי הנהלים וללא אף אמצעי בטיחות או זהירות. בשל תקלה בניסוי פרצה אש אשר אחזה בשלושת הילדים, והם נכוו ונזקקו לטיפול רפואי ולאשפוז. עיריית תל אביב הודיעה כי הותר שטח חלופי לבניית בית הספר שבח מופת בדרום העיר. כתבנו מיכאל האוזר טוב. אחרי שבחודש ספטמבר השר אביגדור ליברמן העיר במהלך ישיבת הממשלה לשר בנט כי ההחלטה להפוך את שבח מופת לבית ספר לילדי העובדים הזרים היא סדר עדיפויות לא נכון. עיריית תל אביב החליטה לשמור על בית הספר במתכונתו הנוכחית, אבל להעבירו לשכונת נווה עופר בעוד כשלוש שנים. על לאכלוס המבנה החדש יפעל בית הספר כרגיל. עם זאת, במקביל אגף נפרד של המבנה יאוכלס בתלמידי השכונה, מרביתם ילדי העובדים הזרים. עירייה כתבה, חשוב להדגיש כי תתקיים הפרדה מלאה בין שני האגפים. הנהלת נמל אשדוד בנתה לבית הדין לעבודה בבקשה להורות לעובדי מגזר הציוד המכני להפסיק את העיצומים הבריוניים, לשון ההנהלה. כתבנו ניתאי ענבי. לדברי ההנהלה, עובדי מגזר הציוד המכני הפסיקו באופן חד צדדי ובצעד בריוני לבצע שעות עבודה נוספות שהם מחויבים להן בהסכם העבודה, מה שגורם לשיבושים ולהאטה בקצב פעילות הנמל. בהנהלה מעריכים כי הסיבה היא כוונתה לנקות משכר העובדים הפרשים בגין עיצומים ושביתות קודמות, בהתאם להחלטת בית הדין. מההסתדרות נמסר אין כל עיצומים בנמל אשדוד. נשיא טורקיה ארדואן הודיע שכוחותיו יערכו לכיבוש מעוז דאעש בסוריה, כתבנו נתן אלדרשן. ארדואן הודיע לנשיא ארצות הברית ברק אובמה כי כוחותיו יתקדמו לכיוון העיר אראקה שבסוריה, במטרה לכבוש אותה. נשיא טורקיה הוסיף שלאחר מכן יתקדמו כוחותיו למנביז' ששוחררה לאחרונה על ידי קבוצת מורדים, שבה תומך הממשל האמריקני. ומזג האוויר, הגשם הגיע בשעות הקרובות, הוא צפוי להתפשט ליתר אזורי הארץ, בדרום קיים חשש לשיטפונות. אלה החדשות שעורכת קרן בן מרדכי, בצוות רון פיטרו וגליה ג'יאשווילי.
J.M. in the A.M. It's Baruch Levine. Shei Bunna is the name of that one. Uh, from the Hashkifa CD. Sheves Achim before that with uh, Sheves Achim volume number two. And Shemayim had Shmai Yisrael to open up that set after our newscast here at J.M. in the A.M. 16 minutes after 7 o'clock in the morning. Rain today with a high temperature of 54. Dr. Jeffrey Gurak is going to join us. He is the author of the brand new book, The Jews of Harlem. The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. He'll join us coming up uh, here at JMNAM. It's Thursday, which means an amazing day on our stream all day long at jmnam.org and, of course, on the NSN app.
Uh, coming up right after the uh, JM and the AM presentation, you'll hear Charlie Harari. And um, Unlocking Greatness. That'll go from 9 until 9.30. Spin Class with Michael Fragan at 9.30. Jew in the City Speaks with Yaakov Horowitz, Dean of Darche Noam of Muncie and founder and director of Project Yes. Jew in the City, Allison Joseph Speaks with him at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Miriam Al-Wallach with That's Life, interviewing Meredith Shapiro, Menachem Ben-Chimol, organizers of the Invent YU Israel Hackathon and Israeli Tech Startup Fair. That's coming up at 10.30 this morning. We'll live lunch between 11 and 1, and then Throwback Thursday will bring us back to um, Lenny Solomon and Chaim David and company live in studio from many, many years ago. So great, great lineup. Uh, jmnam.org and the NSN app all through the day. Make sure you are tuned in and enjoy our amazing daily presentation. Tomorrow, Malcolm Honline uh, rejoins us. We'll have our weekly updates starting at about 7.40 Eastern Time on the stream at jmnam.org and on the NSN app. So join us for the weekly update tomorrow as we explore the events of this week. And the uh, transition for those in the New York, New Jersey area who listen on uh, terrestrial radio, don't forget that our transition is taking place December the 1st. If you have any specific questions about how to continue listening to us, whether it's through the uh, uh, through your iPad or through the NSN app or through your car auxiliary cable or Bluetooth or through our listen line, you can email yoni at nachumsegel.com, yoni, Y-O-N-I, at nachumsegel, N-A-C-H-U-M, S-E-G-A-L dot com with any specific questions. Hey, by the way, speaking of programming, this time Tuesday, the return of our Yeshiva League sports update. Elliot Weiselberg is getting set. Those of you out there who are athletes, uh, students, teachers, uh, administrators, principals, parents, grandparents, everybody out there who wants to hear the Yeshiva League sports update on Tuesdays, you have your opportunity starting this coming Tuesday at about 7.20. Actually, this coming Tuesday will be earlier because Elliot's going to be visiting us and we'll give a little preview of the season. So make sure to be tuned in and get ready to enjoy a Yeshiva League sports update right here at JM in the AM. Should be a good one. It always is. Elliot Weiselberg will have that for you coming up this Tuesday right here at JM in the AM. Here is uh, Shlomo Katz.
JM in the AM. Simcha Liner's Shomer here at JM in the AM. Before that, Shema Kolainu, done by Shlomo Katz. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechanish Basar of Zebin of Yosef and Esther Basar of Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The Chavetz Chaim once said, In principle, there is a tremendous bonfire in Golos. There isn't a day that I don't get against my will newspapers and posters from all different sides who want to embarrass and cast aspersions on the other side. Machlokas, it causes me great pain that even in Eretz Yisrael, this Maisa Satan, the toll of the adversary, has been successful, and they have become enmeshed in Machlokas. I don't know who was Matir, who permitted the Avera, the sin of Lashon Hara, of gossip, of frightful sins, entailed in Machlokas. Each side thinks that the truth is with them, and the other side is what's causing the dispute. They think it's on their heads, but to our side, we will not be accountable for any kind of punishment. They should know that they are greatly mistaken. The worst thing of it is that the Chilol Hashem will come out from it. And specifically in our days, when there are so many tzaros chas v'shalom, we see the signs that Ikvis the Mashiach is descending upon us. The time of Mashiach is coming close. It would be worthwhile for everybody to strengthen their Torah study and their masim tovim, their good deeds. This will increase the peace, the shalom in Klau Yisrael. Every person's heart should tremble that specifically at this time, the Sultan is successful in escalating strife throughout many places. It creates a Chilol Hashem. I recently came across a fascinating piece. The Neid of Yehuda had a son-in-law who was a great tzaddik. They called him Rabbi Yosef HaTzaddik from Pozno. A Rav sent him a Shaila about the Chazan of their Shul, who was not a Shomer Torah Umitzvos. He did not meticulously observe the laws of the Shulchan Aruch. The Rav wanted to remove him from his position. The Balabatim, the people in the Shul, however, didn't want this because he had a spectacular voice. What should he do? The great Gon answered him, Do not remove him from his position. The reason he gave was the following, Mutov lahamid selam bamikdosh. It would be better to put an idol in the sanctuary, rather than to increase machlokas, dispute and strife in Klau Yisrael. The Ponovitcherov once said that the Chovetz Chaim told him, You will be an Ishmatzliach, a successful man, wherever you go and everything that you will do, with the exception of one thing, Machlokes. In this, you will not see Hatzlocha. You will never see Hatzlocha. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
with Shuva here at JM in the AM Thursday morning broadcast. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to everybody who's now drifting back into a regular schedule of school and work after the amazing Chagim, after the incredible Jewish holiday season. Uh, one of our favorite guests is with me uh, live via telephone. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is the Libby Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. He is a prize-winning author. He has written or edited uh, 18 books 
in the area of American Jewish history, and the brand new book is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. It is a New York University Press release. You can go to nypress.org for information. Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and your community, that's for sure. I greatly appreciate that. Uh, this is not the first time you're writing about Jewish Harlem. Well, when you were my student some 30 years ago, <laughs> uh, my first book was called When Harlem Was Jewish, 1870 to 1930. So this version is a rewrite of that first 60 years, and I added an additional 85 years, bringing the story up to literally the present day as Jews have returned to Harlem, and we're beginning to see the first glimmerings of the emergence of Jewish religious life in Harlem. It's been, it's been slow to evolve as far as religious life is concerned, but now there are a number of, a number of minyanim, uh, almost typically Chabad was the first on the scene about 10 years ago, but now there are a number of shuls uh, in existence, and in fact, uh, this Sunday, the Jewish Community Center of Harlem is opening. That's the first, y, first Jewish Y in Harlem, in over a hundred years. So the book uh, revisits the first 60 years and then adds an additional 85 years. So, uh, you know, I keep all my records from, from 40 years ago when I was able to rewrite the book. And frankly, I have to tell you as my friend that um, when you write as a young scholar and you write as an older scholar, uh, you mature over time, and I think this book is a little bit more accessible than the earlier book. And as uh, I feel much more liberated in my writing these days, uh, for example, in this book, I actually devote uh, two paragraphs to my own family history, because hmm. uh, my father grew up on Park Avenue in a tenement on 100th Street, and I talk about the fact that uh, the four boys shared one bed in their three three room apartment and that's the sort of thing you know a personal popular thing that as just starting out in the business of scholarship i would be reticent to write about so right. i think people will find this book uh, a bit more accessible than the when harlem was jewish and brings the story up to the present day i've heard authors say that as an older writer you have the reader in mind more would you say that's accurate my my voice my voice is different you know in the sciences, in math, for example, you might have a, a young person who's an Eloia genius and uh, at age uh, 14 is doing differential calculus. But as a writer, the older you are and the more you write, and this is a message for all of us, the more you do, I think the better you become. Uh, that's a little bit self-serving in saying this, but... I feel that my voice here is a far more personal voice. Right. I feel that I'm speaking to uh, my readers more than to doctoral advisors, because when Harlem was Jewish, you may recall, was my doctoral dissertation. Right. So I've learned over the years, and I hope that it's reflected in the types of things that uh, I'm writing about uh, today. The other thing I want to say about the book in terms of where it fits into the, uh, the field of American Jewish history, that... Um, the field has changed, the field has evolved, and uh, I'm writing now about cultural history. I'm writing about Al Jolson. I'm writing about uh, Sophie Tucker. I'm talking about uh, the Gershwins, this type of thing. So I had to educate myself about 
Jewish contribution to the uh, to the musical and cultural history of Harlem after Jews moved out. There still was a Jewish entrepreneurial presence, and there was also a Jewish cultural presence working with African Americans in Harlem during the the 30s and 40s in particular. Hmm. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The book is called The Jews of Harlem. What what it, what was the original fascination? Understand I I understand there was a doctoral thesis, uh, but why that topic? What was your original attraction to uh, to doing something about Harlem? Good question. So I was a child of the 60s and I lived through an era in New York and New York City, New York Jury is my scholarly beat where, you know, we grew up uh, um memorializing Goodman, Schroeder, and Cheney, these three martyrs in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And I also we also lived through 1968-69, the teacher strike, which pit, pitted blacks against Jews. So I wanted to write about a history of Jewish-black relations in the United States. And I said to my doctoral advisor, I'm going to do a book called Jews and Blacks in the Age of Jim Crow, from 1896 to 1954. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what, uh, to do this right, don't look at the interaction of intellectuals and scholars and the like and politicians. Try to find a place where Jews and blacks live together in the same neighborhood and what sort of interactions took place. So literally, Nachum, I looked out the window of Morningside Heights Fairweather Hall of the History Department of Columbia, and I saw Harlem, and I said, gee... No one's ever studied Harlem before. So it was this engagement with black Jewish history that brought me to Harlem. But then as I started doing the book, the book is more about what does it mean to be a Jew to leave the Lower East Side, the hub of Jewish life for immigrants, and to move uptown. What does it mean in terms of identification, uh, synagogue relationships, uh, the rabbis, the teachers, and things of that sort? So the, the original book ends up being more about internal Jewish life than the external black-Jewish relationship. And ironically, this book, by virtue of the fact that I'm talking about 85 years after Jews left Harlem en masse in the 1920s, uh, I'm writing more about Jewish-black interactions than in the uh, original book. And the other thing I want to say is about this, that from the Harlem book, you were kind enough to mention that I've written a number of books subsequent to that. Right. All of the things that I wrote are somehow connected to the Harlem story. And I'll give and you know you and I are big sports fans, right? <laughs> and I wrote a book about Judaism and sports. Right. The first shul in America to have a pool and a shul together was the institutional synagogue of Harlem on 116th Street between Fifth and, and uh, Lenox Avenue. So that idea that you come to play and you may stay to pray, which was the goal of the institutional synagogue and of the Jewish center on the west side and of many conservative and orthodox synagogues, that idea, which was emblematic in my sports book, began with the Harlem story. So in many respects, I'm very grateful to Harlem because it gave me a hook to write about so many other things that have informed what I've written as a scholar over the last Two generations. My goodness, you know, I've been privileged to teach at Yeshiva. Now, this is my 39th year wow. at Yeshiva. Wow. And uh, I've had a wonderful experience there. And I have to say that one of the things about being at Yeshiva is that Yeshiva has given me the opportunity to write about what interests me as an American Jewish historian. You know, people who teach elsewhere end up teaching 
people who are trained as modern Jewish historians end up teaching the Zohar, which is not my area. But fortunately, given the fact that Yeshiva has the largest Jewish studies department in the entire country, that uh, I've been able to teach what I'm interested in. So the feedback from my students has been something that's also uh, energized me in terms of doing this work. Book is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. Um, are, are, you, you mentioned black-Jewish relations and the, uh, you know, how, how it's possible that some people may be surprised that there was a close relationship between the two communities. Are, are there two personalities at any point, early 1900s, mid-1900s, or even today, uh, that you could point to that symbolized the closeness or the cooperation between the black and Jewish community? Well, one of the things I'm arguing in the book that there's no one Jewish voice with reference to African Americans, and and similarly, there's no one African American voice. So that among Jews, you have people who are very supportive of the African American community, and there are Jews who are restrictionists. Joel Spingarn, a Jew who was one of the founders of the NAACP, was very much involved, and this may surprise everyone. In integrating Harlem, people are unaware of the fact that in many places in Harlem in the 20s and 30s, even though it, the neighborhood is predominantly African-American, there are many restaurants in Harlem that were off-limits to African-Americans. Hmm. And Spingarn was one of these people who pushed for integration. Another example was um, Leo Brecker and Frank Schiffman. They were the owners and operators of the Apollo Theater, this great mecca sure. of African-American theatrical and musical uh, opportunity. And they were people who said, everyone sits together. Blacks are not segregated in the, in the balcony. Uh, everyone works together. So they were people who were very, very supportive of African-Americans. And in the 1960s, uh, there were some attacks against Schiffman for some radical black groups who said that, in fact, he was out to uh, help himself more than the community. And stepping up to the plate, interesting metaphor, was <laughs> Jack Roosevelt Robinson, who said, no, Schiffman and Brecker have a long history of working among uh, uh, African Americans. So what I argue in the book is there's no one Jewish voice. There's good, bad, and ugly in terms of, of that relationship. And similarly, you have the Amsterdam News, which was very supportive of, of Jewish efforts, at the same time, there were uh, a number of notorious um, African-American black nationalists, predecessors of, uh, of Louis Farrakhan, going back to the 1920s. So it's a nuanced story. It's a complicated story. And ironically, now, 40 years later, I'm getting back to the original motivation for writing this book to say, when we look at black-Jewish relationships, it's a very complicated uh, story. So I think people will be uh, intrigued uh, intrigued by that as well. I've had the pleasure of, uh, of on more than one occasion, of seeing the Lower East Side of Manhattan through your eyes and, uh, you know, re really reliving in just a couple of hours uh, American Jewish history in such an important place uh, in reference to such an important era. And we see many synagogues and institutions, obviously many of them, you know, not active anymore, but you know what I mean. Certainly, mm -hmm. certainly the edifices uh, are viewable. Uh, if, if we would do the same thing in Harlem, would there be plenty for us to see? Are there plenty of Jewish sites of the last 100 years that you could point out? There, almost all the Jewish sites are now churches. 
but it, it's sort of interesting. When the first book came out, I was doing walking tours of Harlem, and now I'm back doing walking tours of Harlem. And you have uh, the old Temple Israel, which was on 120th Street and Lenox Avenue. Go there, you see this this beautiful building with Jewish iconography in the uh, uh, in the outside. Ohab Tzedek Synagogue, which has been for the longest time, 95th Street, uh, between Columbus and Amsterdam. Uh, that building is still there. The IS, the Institutional Synagogue. So there are a number of synagogues that are now churches that have survived. But you have to understand that the shul that my grandparents davened in, the Homeler Young Men's Association of Harlem, was a storefront. There were over a hundred different congregations of Jews, particularly in East Harlem, among the poor Jews who rented out space who didn't have buildings. So, um, architecturally speaking, the Lower East Side, the old Lower East Side, and you know it's become gentrified as much as Harlem has become gentrified, probably more than Harlem has become gentrified. Mm. Uh, there's much less in terms of what you can see, but there certainly is a lot uh, that, that's, wor- that's worth talking about within Harlem. But if you go to 116th Street, you look at the Oropsetic building, on either side of it, you have a whole new string of stores and buildings, and fortunately for me, when I do these tours, that building has survived as a church, because I wouldn't want to say to people, you know, look at this area, this is where the synagogue used to be. So those synagogues have survived as churches, and... Um, they're very interesting to uh, look at the uh, the gentrification of Harlem uh, in the present day. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The Jews of Harlem is the book, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. Uh, some people who remember the uh, 60s and 70s uh, were the bulk of the Upper West Side Jewish community, I think we could say, were, were in the 60s and 70s, meaning West 60s mm-hmm. and West 70s. Uh, we, we saw over the next uh, 20, 30 years, uh, the community and the epicenter of the community really move uptown, very, very active now in the 80s and 90s, low 100s. Uh, is, is this now, the revival of the Jewish community of Harlem, just an extension of that? Or is it more of a separate type of development, the revival of the community? It, it, it's, very, it's very much con, uh, connected. Over the last 10 years ago, there were already more Caucasians and African-Americans in Harlem, and Jews have been part of that return to Harlem. And in fact, from a real estate, from a real estate point of view, it's almost becoming prohibitive to, to buy a brownstone in Harlem, Harlem today. And there has been a migration from, uh, from the west side, and to some extent from the lower east side as well, into Harlem, uh, uh, occupying some of these uh, buildings. And from a religious point of view, the west side Aruv has been extended into Harlem, so we can anticipate, you know, when you have an Aruv in a community, mm-hmm. that's a sure sign that traditional Jews will be moving in. Uh, my expectation is that the numbers of Jews coming into Harlem of a traditional nature is, is in fact going to grow. But the other dynamic here is, if we look broadly at New York Jewry, the fact is that gentrified neighborhoods are not initially religious. It's only over a course of time as the community begins to grow. So there have been Jews in Harlem returning to Harlem over the last 10 years. It's only the last, the last few years beginning to see signs of the uh, revival of Jewish community life in Harlem. So it's a, it's a, a, I end the book by saying Jewish Harlem is a work in progress. Hmm. So we'll see what, uh, we'll see what develops. Uh, 
But again, uh, when you walk, the st- my wife and I have frequently during the summer walked the streets of Harlem, and uh, we feel very comfortable there. And uh, it's a gentrified neighborhood. It's a safe neighborhood. And I sound like the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> of Harlem, but, the, but, the, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I have had this affinity for this community. Um, there was an early review of the book came out that called the review uh, Harlem on His Mind, which was which was a play on words because uh, back in the 1960s, there was a very controversial exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art called Harlem on My Mind, which attacked Jews. Mm. So now Harlem on My Mind has been part of my, part of my life uh, for the uh, last 40 years. And in a sense, if you go back to my... Uh, in my father's life, uh, uh, there's been a direct connection to Harlem going back to 1905. So that's uh, that's very special for me too. Can you uh, can you tell me about the uh, the two photographs on the cover of the book? Are, are those the same building? The that that building was the Beit Midrash Hagadol of Harlem, which was where? What was the address? Which was on 105th Street between Madison and Fifth Avenue. It's no longer there. It was an extension. It was an extension of the Beit Midrash Hagadol of Norfolk Street, down in your neck of the woods. Right. And in Harlem's heyday, there were a number of landmark synagogues that either had branches in Harlem or moved uptown to Harlem. You know, you and I have talked a number of times about the Eldridge Street Synagogue, Kahawadash Shurin of uh, Eldridge Street. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a uptown Eldridge Street, uh, uh, excuse me, Kahawadash Shurin in Harlem on 115th Street, if I'm not mistaken. And in the book, there's an interesting story, I think a controversial story, of the battle that ensued downtown when the rich Jews, the newly rich Jews called all rightniks of uh, downtown, wanted to move the shul uptown, you know, take the money and run, so to speak. Right. <laughs> and I characterize it as one of the first examples of what we call, and you know, I, I, I give the good, the bad, and ugly, I tell it straight, uh, of what I call synagogue imperialism, right. which has been an issue for our community since since that day. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's something which Jews have had to deal with over the course of time. So I think there's resonance from the, the Harlem story connected to the Lower East Side and also connected to uh, what happens to Jews in Gotham after they leave uh, and move elsewhere in the 1920s. What do you think in general of the uh, incredible growth and um, gentrification going on in the entire island of Manhattan? We see what's going on in Washington Heights. We read about Inwood. I would guess the area between uh, Harlem and Washington Heights will also uh, go through its own renaissance at some point in the near future. I mean, it, it seems like anywhere on that island now, uh, is uh, the arrow is only pointing up. Well, the gentrification of Manhattan, if you take a look at one of my earlier books called Jews in Gotham, which I published five years ago, I point out that even during the toughest times in New York City, we're talking about the late 70s during the Beam administration and the early Koch administration. You began to see signs of people not wanting to, not wanting to commute into the city. One, seeing Manhattan again as, as their home. You know, uh, one of the great blessings of teaching at Yeshiva is that when I teach at Stern College on Christmas morning, and I, I live in Riverdale, 
I'm able to drive in and teach it at Stern. It takes me seven minutes to drive from my home in Riverdale. <laughs> right. and normally, it takes an hour. Right. So people, a lot of people, and I, and I love Long Island. I love Long Island Jews, but I also <laughs> pity them who are on the Long Island distressway who have to drive into New York or take the Long Island Railroad into the city. I, I'm very interested in rapid transit history of New York City. Anyway, what I'm saying is that each one of these neighborhoods reflects the fact that people want to live in close proximity to their work. Right. And in fact, for the Harlem story, it's history repeating them itself. Why did Jews move to Lenox Avenue in 1905? Because the subways were, were just built and you could live uptown. And if you owned a factory, you could live in quasi-suburbia, although it's still in Manhattan, and get down to work within uh, 15, uh, 15 or 20 minutes. One of the sort of jokes in the book is that when Harlem first became Jewish in the 1870s, Harlem was geographically separate from downtown. And if you wanted to get from 125th Street to Battery Park in the summertime, the only way to get there was by steamboat. Huh. And it took between 45 minutes and an hour to get downtown. Well, we're opening the Second Avenue rail, uh, subway eventually. Right. At this point, during rush hour, it takes between, oh, 45 minutes to an hour to get downtown. <laughs> so some things have changed and some things have remained uh, the same. <laughs> Studying the growth of a city through rapid transit is a really interesting way of looking at the mention of urban growth. So what I'm trying to say is that this book talks about Jewish history. It talks about African-American history. But it also is, gives you some insight into the evolution of uh, this great city of New York, which is uh, my hometown, of were there, course. Uh, were, there any, uh, were there any Jewish government officials that represented Harlem at any point? Not necessarily in the House of Representatives, but in any capacity that, of any significance? Well, Jacob Cantor, who ended up on the board of Yeshiva in 1920s, who was a congressman in, uh, in Harlem, uh, became uh, Manhattan Borough President. And, of course, there were a number of uh, pretty uh, important uh, congressmen from the Harlem district. For example, here's, a, here's an interesting connection. Um, Isaac Siegel, <laughs> who was the um, president of the Institutional Synagogue in 1916, a year before the synagogue was established, was elected um, uh, to Congress from that district. And it was an interesting election. You had three Jewish candidates running for office. You had Morris Silkwit, who was a socialist, who said, vote for me. I have the interests of laboring people at heart. Uh, there was Bernard Rosenblatt, who was not related to Yusselar Rosenblatt, who was the most famous Hazen in, in, in Harlem. Right. Uh, he was uh, the executive secretary of the Federation of American Zionists, and he said, vote for me because I'm a Zionist. And Isaac Siegel said, I'm an American Orthodox Jew. And one of his campaign slogans was, if elected, I will be proud to speak both Yiddish and English in the halls of the United States Congress, <laughs> which only begs the question, with whom would he have spoken Yiddish to in the House of, in, in the House of Representatives? And the answer probably is Meyer London, <laughs> who course. was a socialist from the Lower East Side. Right. Oh, one, how did Siegel win? It was a very close election. He won because he was very friendly with the Italian-American district leader, a fellow named... Fiorello LaGuardia, who go. assumed that position when Siegel became a state uh, uh, Supreme Court justice uh, in the uh, in the 1920s. And of course, LaGuardia 
was a fluent Yiddish speaker. Right. He was he was once accused by an opponent of being an anti-Semite, right. which he certainly wasn't. And in response, LaGuardia said, "I'd like to debate Henry Frank over my alleged anti-Semitism in a debate which would have should be entirely conducted in uh, in Yiddish." <laughs> and I have to think that we as Americans would have been much better off if the two uh, presidential candidates today would have spoken in Yiddish. Because that would be a way that very few people would understand what either of them were saying. Amen to that. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 and the FM Dial Broadcasting Live. The Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak, the book is The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. My cantorial friends would be angry at me if I didn't ask you which synagogue Cantor Yesela Rosenblatt was most associated with in Harlem. He was the husband of the Oheb Tzedek Synagogue. He had a sweetheart contract, which meant he only had to be in shul to daven, <coughs> excuse me, once every four weeks for Shabbat Mevorachim, of course, Shabbat Mevorachim, uh, praying for the, the uh, the inauguration of the new month is a cantorial signature piece, and it was said that when Rosenblatt, Dobbin, the women in the balcony swooned, uh, and <laughs> O.Z. Obsedek was also the site of the, one of the sites of the day-long funeral of the great Yiddish writer Sholem Aleichem. Mm. The funeral, in, it was in 1916, the funeral started in the, in the Bronx, and then it went to Harlem, and uh, Rosenblatt decided Kel Malay Rachamim, and then it went to Lower East Side, and then he was buried in Queens. So that was a real travelogue for for, America, for New York Jews, and it, it took place in Hard Sedek. And it, it was it was one of the signature synagogues of of that time, and it, it survived quite well. And it's, it's it has been for the longest time on uh, 95th Street in Amsterdam and, and Columbus. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is the Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, a prize-winning author, written or edited 18 books in American Jewish history. The new one is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. It's a, a New York University Press release. Dr. Gorak, I assume this is available everywhere at this point? It's available on Amazon. It's also available in Barnes & Noble. And uh, maybe God willing, it'll be a, someday will be a major motion picture. Uh, that would be nice. That would be pretty That'd cool. Be nice. uh, right. I, I got to take this opportunity. To, as I get older and older, I appreciate more and more uh, the mentorship uh, you for me that I've enjoyed over all these years. So all I could say is, in addition to thanking you for appearing today, is that thank you for all your guidance for me over the last many decades. Well, many years ago, I said that uh, I predicted and uh, that you would make a. Uh, an important contribution to uh, to American Jewish life. Back then, I really didn't understand how great they would actually be. So this show is, is, is so important to American Jews and so important to everyone who listens to it. So uh, congratulations, Mazel Tov, on uh, I think it's 33 years that yeah. you've been, been doing this. So, and we've had a very nice relationship, and uh, our families are close. So thank God for that. Thank you so much. Mazal Tov on the book and uh, a very happy 5777 to you. Thank you very much. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak, one of our favorites. You're listening to JM in the AM.
J.M. in the A.M. It's Avramo. It's Avram Freed with Itcha Ani. Before that, Mimkomcha done by Yaakov Shweki. 16 minutes after 8 o'clock Thursday at J.M. in the A.M. Just got the most amazing piece of news. Want to wish a mazel tov going out to um, Rebecca and Jason Katz. They are proud parents of a brand new baby girl. Their first. And we say mazel tov from all of us here at J.M. in the A.M. Well... I guess that would mean the first JM and the AM grandchild at this point, since uh, Grandpa Robert Katz has been part of this uh, broadcast for many, many decades. Uh, so to the entire family, to everybody, to the uh, parents and grandparents and the extended family, we say mazal tov from all of us here at JM and the AM. Unbelievable. Rebecca and Jason, we say mazal tov from all of us here at JM and the AM. And, of course, the entire extended cats and fine families. Uh, Mazal Tov. What an amazing piece of news. Just learned it now. What an amazing piece of news. I want to remind everybody that Election 2016 is coming up. And um, Assemblyman Dove Hyken with the Republican point of view and Rabbi Menachem Ganak with the Democratic point of view in a, uh, in a debate or discussion that will be moderated by our good friend Leon Goldenberg. Uh, it's going to be happening at the Talmud Torah of Flatbush. It's coming Monday night. Monday night starting at 7.30 p.m. at the Talmud Torah of Flatbush on Coney Island Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. Information, you can contact Talmud Torah of Flatbush. Seats are limited, so be there early. And get ready to decide in the big decision 2016 who should be the next president of the United States. Well, many of you are aware... Uh, that October is the Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Anybody who uh, follows the NFL certainly <laughs> is aware of the fact uh, that it, uh, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And before the month ends, we wanted to make sure to get this message on the air. You know, many of you are familiar with the fact, and I'm sure Dr. Joseph Abrams, who's going to join me in a moment, is familiar with the fact that ever since my brother's passing from esophageal cancer, I have been uh, advocating and begging uh, people, especially with certain symptoms, to go out and get endoscopies, early screenings, because uh, early screenings is the difference, frankly, between life and death. It's is really as simple as that. And I'm sure in the area of breast cancer, it is um, often the same way. To shed some light on all of this is Dr. Joseph Abrams, who is uh, with us live via telephone and... Um, uh, he, we, he could discuss with us the uh, uh, the um, importance of these screenings. He is a radiologist at the Bay Ridge Medical Imaging in Brooklyn, New York, with subspecialties in breast imaging and interventions. Dr. Joseph Abrams, welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I say this every time, how, how sometimes I regret being so straightforward and dramatic because I don't want to really scare, you know, People, that's not my goal to scare people out there. But but when we say it's the difference between life and death, it's no exaggeration. Uh, early screenings, early findings you can attest really can change the future of a human being. Absolutely not. Awesome. Too many people wait until they experience symptoms. In the setting of breast cancer, those symptoms might be a palpable lump or nipple discharge before they get a mammogram. By then, the cancer may be more difficult to treat and cure. That's why it's so important to have a screening mammogram once a year. When breast cancer is detected through annual screening, the vast majority of women are cured. You mentioned esophageal cancer. cancer. Unfortunately, right. there is no screening right. 
for esophageal cancer. But luckily, breast cancer is one of those. Um, and unfortunately, esophageal cancer is detected when someone presents with symptoms. Right. And that, unfortunately, may be too late. Breast cancer, too, if it's detected by symptoms, that may be too late. That's why it's always preferable to screen the patient while she's healthy before she develops those symptoms. Um, we have discussed on more than one occasion the prevalence of breast cancer in our community. Now, I don't know if this is your area of expertise, but, but your, your imaging center, Bay Ridge Medical Imaging, if I'm not mistaken, is in the heart of a Jewish neighborhood, correct? Absolutely. Um, so one out of every eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in her lifetime, making breast cancer the most commonly diagnosed cancer in women and the second leading con- cause of cancer death in women. That's one out of every eight, out of one out of every eight women across all demographics. Right. In our community, it's maybe one out of six or one out of every seven, making it even higher. And the aim of Breast Cancer Awareness Month is to promote screening as the most effective weapon in the fight against breast cancer. And, you know, our practice, Bay Ridge Medical Imaging, we've been in Brooklyn for 28 years, and we saw the need for compassionate patient care in Jewish neighborhoods. So we've opened offices in places like Borough Park and Midwood, and we're proud and honored to serve those communities. Yeah, right in the heart of the uh, of the communities. If I'm not mistaken, the, one of them's on 14th Avenue, the other one on Coney Island Avenue. Am I correct? Yes, we have. Right. Yep, Coney Island, 14th Avenue, 38th Street, and the other is on Coney Island. And this is not really a discussion about why. Uh, the fact is, for whatever reason, uh, that, that this hits our community at a higher rate than other communities. And you know, it, and I'm sure people like yourself, you know, read up on it and examine the situation and are very curious about it. But here we're just presenting the facts. And not only not only is it important in general because it's something that so many people here in this country, uh, you know, end up suffering from, but in our community for whatever reason it's even more prevalent. So all we could do, and I've said this so many times before when it comes to the endoscopies as I mentioned earlier, all we could do is sit here and beg our listeners to simply put a test like this, a screening like this, a mammography, a mammogram, on their annual schedule, right? It's as simple as that. When the calendar turns, whatever month you want it to be, make sure every single year, now it's a brand new year, that every single year at some point uh, you get tested for this. Yeah, it's one of the things we do. We send patients reminders by mail, by phone call, Hmm. that they're due for their annual mammogram. There you go. Uh, Because it is so important. You know, there was some confusion recently the, um, the American Cancer Society and the American College of Radiology for years have advocated yearly mammography screening. Right, and a lot of articles were written you know, that, that seemed to dispute that at, at some point. Right, yearly mammography screening beginning at the age of 40. And I would add, if someone is at higher risk, if they have a family history right. of breast cancer, as many in our community do, in our community do um, they may want to begin the screening before that, and they may want to use um, additional forms of screening like MRI and ultrasound. So nothing less than that. And the reason for this uh, confusion or controversy, if you will, is the, um, the United States Preventive Task Force um, recently came out with a suggestion that breast cancer begin at age 50 instead of age 40, right. and it be done every two years right. instead of every one year. And their justification for this was that um, you know, the increase in survival, um, screening one year every two years, does not justify the additional cost to the community. Right. Now, I think that's refuted by you know, real-world clinical experience. In our practice, we've seen patients develop deadly cancers within a year or even less than a year from having a normal mammogram. Mm-hmm. And it's also refuted by common sense. You know, Nachum, if you were standing and someone was 50 feet away from you and, God forbid, shooting at you, you would duck even if you knew there was only a 5% chance 
that you were shot. Right. You wouldn't say, okay, there's a higher chance of, God forbid, being hit if the guy was 25 feet away. So you would still duck out of the way. And, you know, if it were your relative, your mother, your wife, your sister, your daughter, um, you would want that additional, um, the, the better chance of survival. Yeah, of course. So... Um. I hate to ask this question because it always seems to come down to this, but with all these new guidelines and, and what you just mentioned in terms of the studies, are insurance companies less cooperative? Uh, you know, the average insurance companies, are they still willing to, to fund one test, one screening per year? Absolutely, they are. They still fund one screening per year, and in fact, it's expanded. Here in New York State, there's a law that if a woman has dense breasts, um, mammography sometimes doesn't pick up cancers in very dense breasts, the cancer may be obscured. Um, we do an adjunct sonogram, supplemental sonogram, mm. at the time of mammography. And, you know, at our practice, we try to do it on the same day. We make every effort to do it on the same day so the patient doesn't have to be called back for patient convenience. And like I said, if the patient's at high risk, um, we um, insurance companies will supplement MRI. Now, here at our practice, we try to, you know, do a form of chesed by, we call it BRMI cares. If the patient does not have insurance or cannot afford it, we work with them to... Um, Make sure they get the care that they that they need. Understood. All right, Dr. Joseph Abrams. He's a radiologist at Bay Ridge Medical in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, subspecialty in breast imaging and interventions. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Are there statistics? I, I I can't imagine that it's not. But are there statistics that now, because of the incredible publicity, that October really has increased awareness and that a lot more women are making appointments during this month? There is an uptick of appointments during this month. Women, I mean, go by different reasons. They may have had their first mammogram because their doctor referred them, then they go annually based on that time. Some women right. do it around their birthday every year, and some women go by October Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So there is, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit of an uptick during October, but uh, as long as it's once a year, um, it's fine. How do people reach you if they have questions about any of this? So you can call us at 718-238-7000. As you said, we have offices in Coney Island, Midwood, Borough Park, and uh, they can call us at 718-238-7000 with any questions. You know, everything we do is in accordance with halacha. There are separate waiting areas for men and women. All the texts are female who perform the mammograms and sonograms. So uh, they can call us at 718-238-7000 if they have any questions about what imaging they need or to schedule a mammogram. You know, Dr. Abrams, I, ha I have proof that these conversations on these airwaves lead to literally saving lives. So we did a good thing this morning. So yes, I talk to you and... And continue your amazing work, and thanks for all the information. Same to you. Thank you so much. Dr. Joseph Abrams, he's a radiologist at Bay Ridge Medical Imaging in Brooklyn, subspecialty in breast imaging and interventions. It is, in fact, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I have discussed on more than one occasion screenings and getting out there and having the, uh, the test done uh, for whatever it is that might either run in your family or whatever uh, your age dictates, you know, whatever test your age uh, dictates you should have so get out there everybody and schedule them whether it's a colonoscopy an endoscopy uh, in this case the uh, uh, mammograms whatever whatever the case may be uh, as we've said many many times we have listeners who've attested to the fact that we've actually saved lives with these reminders 28 minutes after eight o'clock it's thursday and you are listening to jm in the a.m
טובים בדרך אליך, לך בראש זקוף היום לפניך, גם ברגעים של נפילה, אף פעם אל תתייאש מהתפילה. ישם איתך שם לידך, כתיים שתלוי בך, הוא לא עוזב, לא מעצב, אותך תמיד אוהב. כן, השם איתך ועוזר, ואין ענת שלא עובר, יש כל דממה בנשמה, אלוקים כהן. Thursday morning, it's Ari Goldwags. Well, many of you are aware of the fact, because we've discussed this on the air, that our good friend Robert Ben Ramon, every single year, has the amazing privilege, he and his wife Sheila and the entire family have the privilege of sponsoring uh, bar and bat mitzvah celebrations in Natanya, Israel, for children who, frankly, uh, wouldn't have those celebrations and, in many cases, could not afford Uh, in, in all cases, I think we could say, we'd not be able to afford any type of celebration. So they go ahead, the Ben Ramon family, and they, um, they really put on uh, quite a party for everybody and make it a great celebration. Shlomi Warner is with us live from Israel, uh, somebody who could speak about this incredible project, uh, one that is a two-day celebration, and today is the second day of that two-day celebration. Shlomi, welcome to JM in the AM. Welcome. Welcome from Israel, from Netanya City. Tadarabah. So tell us what's going on. What, what, what happens with these boys and girls and their families? What's been happening over these two days? We have an incredible, thanks to the generous gift of, of uh, children, uh, kids traveling yesterday to Jerusalem, the boys, uh, 12 boys and 12 uh, girls, which all of them recognized by the welfare department, traveling to Jerusalem, visited in the, uh, in the hotel, pray and learn how to put in, how to deal with all the prayers, and afterwards they go to visit around Jerusalem and learn the history of Jerusalem. For them, it was an extraordinary 
day, and today is going to be the, the biggest party for them, which they don't have the opportunity to celebrate with their families. So thanks to Robert and Sheila, we we're going to do a big, big party with a lot of people and a lot of gifts to each of them. And the best we can do for them, this is what we're going to do tonight. Including the Tzfilin. That is a gift for the boys as well, right? Right, right. The boys will get a tefillin and a clock and a uniform, and the girls as well, and not tefillin, of course, they will get uh, jewelry, and they are so excited, and the families, and it's going to be at dinners and parties, and we have uh, several uh, people who are going to sing, and a very famous uh, song that will come and sing in the front of them. It's going to be a big, big yeah, we we've seen the photos of the celebration. It's really amazing. It's not the this is not the first year that it's happening. This is an annual event, correct? Right. Uh, Robert and Sheila, when we met them and we explained them that it's necessary and it needs for the kids, so they came immediately to support. And this is the second year, and they promise us that they will continue to contribute to the to the children. So we're going to do tonight a big party, and next year. We're going to do another party, and every year we hope and we that uh, another children will have the opportunity to celebrate their bar mitzvah. Uh, Shlomi Warner is with us from Natanya, Israel. Yesterday was the Jerusalem part of the celebration. Sheila and Robert Ben Ramon are again recognizing 25 families with bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs for the children of Natanya. Today is going to be, as you heard Shlomi say, the big party, the big celebration in Natanya itself uh, with the gifts and with the music and with the uh, entire party going on. Um, there are other projects that you're working on as we speak, right? Right, absolutely. First of all, Robert and Sheila made also a big gift for the city with the dolphins right. that we put around the city, and uh, it was uh, obtained by children, and we sell it. All the money that we collect, we donate to the city uh, of Natana to a poor family. So Robert and Sheila is involved with us many years and we are so proud that we have this family that uh, can give something small, but it's, it's, it's going to be a big change for the families and the entire city. So we are very proud of that. Well, the, uh, we've seen the photos of the, of the dolphins that you're referring to that, uh, that the kids have an opportunity to decorate and to enjoy and that uh, add uh, a certain uh, splendor uh, to the city, as you described. So, yes, uh, no doubt a unique and a very much appreciated project. Well, Shlomi, say mazal. Exactly. And Go ahead. What I'm saying also that uh, Robert also donated 3D uh, printers for the youth uh, right. center, and he has a lot of other projects in the city. And, you know, you don't say it in front of people, but this guy is one of the biggest supporters of the state of Israel, and we are so thankful to him that we have the opportunity to save lives of people and change lives of people in the city. Well, no question about it. We've recognized it many times with a tremendous smile and incredible enthusiasm. The Ben Ramon family uh, continues to uh, support some great projects, including what's going on in Natanya today. Shlomi, make sure to say Mazal Tov to all the families on our behalf, and hopefully next year we'll actually see you during the big celebration. Uh, with pleasure, and we hope to see all of you in Israel and Netanyahu. You are most welcome to visit and be part of the Netanyahu 
Yeah, looking forward, I can tell you that much. And Kolakavo to Sheila and Robert Ben Ramon again, and the Ben Ramon family. It's a project we've discussed on the air before, and it is a very special day in Israel. Yesterday was Jerusalem Day for those kids, and today is Natanya Day as their two-day bar and bat mitzvah celebration continues, and 25 families are touched by an incredible gesture. More coming up 24 minutes before 9 o'clock. You are listening to JM in the AM.
motherland and they can be crusade. It's been so many years crying, so many tears, don't you know, don't you really know? We are pushed to the ground, through our faith we are found standing strong. The Spanish Inquisition wanted us to bow. Yaakov Shweki, we are a miracle. Makar Chaim, done by Omek Hadavar. You heard Micha Gammerman in there. A great song, Esau Enai, according to listener Yehudis. It was written by uh, Repinchus Wolf. Really nice selection. Uh, I thank those of you who have been commenting on our app this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
A lot of comments about the uh, interview with Dr. Gorak, which was nice. And Mordechai Shapiro's Ivdu opened up that set. Yeshiva League Sports Update returns Tuesday here at JM in the AM. Elliot Weiselberg, the brand new Hassan, is uh, ready to present that. 7.20 this coming Tuesday morning. Yeshiva League Sports Update. All you uh, principals and coaches and players out there, make sure to be tuned in. Uh, later today, all through the day, amazing programming on our stream all day long. Charlie Harari is next. Um, Unlocking Greatness is the name of the program. He'll be speaking to everybody coming up just five minutes from now. Charlie Harari with Unlocking Greatness at jmdm.org on the NSN app. 9.30 for Spin Class with Michael Fragan. Jew in the City Speaks at 10 o'clock. Allison Joseph with Ryakov Horowitz of Project Yes. At 10.30, Miriam Alwalik is back with That's Life, featuring an interview with Meredith Shapiro, Menachem Ben Chimol, organizers of the Invent YU Israel Hackathon and the Israeli Tech Startup Fair. And then we do the live lunch from 11 o'clock until 1 p.m. Make sure to join us and comment and uh, let us know what you think from wherever it is around the world that you are. All right, simple as that. David Lowy will wrap up a Thursday reminder tomorrow. Malcolm Holmline rejoins us. Weekly update, 7.40 Eastern Time tomorrow morning uh, on the NSN app, NahumSiegel.com, through all of our methods of listening. Uh, that's happening tomorrow, 7.40 Eastern Time, right here at JM in the AM.
Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM Dial Broadcasting Live in the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Wraps up a, a Thursday for us here at JMNAM. Amazing day on our stream all day long at jmnam.org. Charlie Harari follows next. Make sure to be tuned in. Tomorrow we are back. And, of course, Malcolm Honline and the uh, weekly update at 7.40 Eastern Time tomorrow morning right here at JM in the AM. Have a fabulous Thursday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.